fans, and welcome in. It's episode 52 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. Doug, we finally actually have a little bit of Canucks stuff to talk about today. It was uh, pretty pretty slim pickings there for a while once the team got eliminated. Yeah, I think... I. I you never like you you've never heard the league actually say this but i always think that sometimes the league kind of puts a bit of a like a muzzle on teams being able to make trades or transactions while the stanley cup final was on uh just because it kind of takes away attention from the final which apparently the ratings weren't that great uh to begin with but uh yeah i mean obviously we're less than a week away from the draft a week as of tomorrow when free agency opens up so uh Definitely should be a lot to talk about come next episode. Yes, definitely. I think I feel like change is in the air. We're going to talk about some of those changes and just some stuff going on around the league today as well. Uh, but first of all, Doug, I haven't seen you for a little while. How, how have you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, yeah, man, I, I've been pretty good. Uh, you know, busy, obviously, at work. Uh, one thing I did want to say, Pete, uh, this is our 52nd episode, as you said off the top. Uh, I think this is officially the end of season one of the Canucks Speakeasy podcast, and in theory, we should switch to season two come episode 53. Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think uh, once you hit the draft, for me, uh, that's always kind of the, the start of the new season, right? So yeah, I'd say that's it. This is uh, Let's cap off season one. We made it through uh, through a whole year plus a little bit. I mean, episode 52, if we were doing this in normal times for us, would have been back in August. But, uh, you know, some things happened this year. It's 2020. Anything goes. Yeah, so I guess this is the end of season one. Well, there we go. We made it. Look out, season two. Uh, our mic quality will be better than the start of season one. Um, while we're recording right now... Thursday night football is going on and uh, we are both big football fans and uh, this game didn't garner a lot of interest for us. It's uh, the Jets and Broncos. However, there is a Canucks connection to it with uh, the Denver Broncos starting quarterback tonight. Is he related and to Rick he Rippin? He is Rick Rippin's cousin. Really? And uh, yeah, and Mark Rippin, uh, the former Redskins quarterback, is their uncle, I believe it is. Oh. Um, but yeah, I was reading about it. It came up on a couple of tweets today, but uh, Brett Rippin, he's from Spokane, so not too far from here as well. And uh, Rick Rippin is his cousin. I think it's a cousin once removed, and I, I never know what any of that means when you get into cousins removed and second cousins. I'm sure someone can tweet it to us and explain it. But there's the Canucks connection. So I got the game on with no sound. I got no one on my fantasy team playing. I don't think a lot of people have many Jets on their fantasy team. But anyways, I just wanted to mention that, a little bit of a Canucks connection with Thursday Night Football and Rick Rippin, RIP, one of my uh, all-time favorite Canucks. And uh, I loved that guy. Yeah, uh, that's cool. I, I Obviously, I knew his last name was Rip, and I didn't realize that they were related. Um, the other thing I just wanted to touch about this game really quickly, I saw one of the best like fantasy uh, names uh, for football I'd ever seen. It, it was called Same Darn Old Jets. Oh, I like that. That is a, that is a good one. Uh, and it looks like Darnold's back. He got knocked out of the game uh, as well. But um, anyways, we don't need to get into Jets and Broncos. That's that's not what we're here for. I'm sure that's not what a lot of football fans would even be here for. Um, let's uh, let's tell people where they can find us on the Twitter machine. I'm at Pete underscore gas. Uh, the podcast is at Canucks Speak. Uh, I'm at Doug Venn, and we're building this ever-growing outro playlist on Spotify. Give that a follow, uh, the Canucks Speakeasy outro playlist. So speaking of seasons ending, the NHL season obviously ended with 
the Tampa Bay Lightning winning the cup in the bubble. And, you know, I think a lot of people in 2020 were thinking it was going to be something weird like the Islanders winning the cup. But Tampa Bay, especially after what happened last year with Columbus, I think that's a, a fitting champ and it's a fitting end to what I thought was a really incredible playoffs. And believe me, uh, there was I, I really had my doubts that the NHL was going to pull this off. Yeah, I think most fans uh, were very skeptical. And I'm sure the players, if you were to ask them honestly in an interview, they would say they were skeptical about it uh, all coming together like it did. Uh, Congratulations to the Tampa Bay Lightning for their second Stanley Cup victory. Uh, Still breaks my heart that they have two and the Canucks still don't have one. Oh, man, it it kills me, man. Like 1992, the Lightning came in with, uh, with Ottawa, I think it was. And if you told me then that Tampa would have two cups before we'd have any, I probably would have just switched sports right there. Yeah. Uh, And then the other thing, uh, since they won, they seem to just not be given fucks about anything. If you've seen any of the celebrations uh, they've been doing down in Florida, which is probably one of the worst states in the U.S. currently as far as, like, COVID outbreaks. I mean, letting random strangers drink out of the cup. Like, holy cow. Like, we thought Ovi. And again, obviously, there wasn't a pandemic when Ovi was partying it up. And, you know, we all thought, oh, Ovi, he's so cute. You know what I mean? Good for him. But I'm looking at some of these Tampa Bay players. I'm like, what the fuck are you guys doing, man? Yeah, they've gone all Florida on us, man. They, I know that there's only a handful of Americans on that team, but uh, the Canadians have been down there too long, and the Swedes and everyone else. Uh, that's uh, yeah, they've gotten a lot of bad press for that. That's a bad look for for the team. Um, that was all pretty ridiculous. I saw a report that the NHL has actually reached out to the Tampa Bay uh, management group saying, uh, "You got to tell your players to uh, smarten up, especially in the public eye." No kidding. It's a, it's a bad look after what I thought was a, a very pretty much a perfect bubble. There was there was no positive cases. I thought the presentation was excellent. I thought everything about the bubble I thought was done much better than I thought it could be. It, it exceeded my expectations. Great hockey and uh, the players wanted it. I mean, maybe there's a few teams. I know when the Canucks beat the Blues, there's some rumblings that maybe the Blues didn't want to be there. They had a few fathers with with newborns there, but I, I know a lot of teams did. And maybe there were some teams who wanted to be there less, but Tampa Bay wanted it. And that was a hard cup to win. And it was great to see. And of course, now we see what happens to that team. Cause like a lot of teams out there, they are in some real cap uncertainty. Yeah. And Tampa Bay to their credit. I mean, they were the best team in the bubble. In my opinion, they wanted it more. I think I heard a couple of people talk and they were saying, you know, what would have happened was it game one uh, between them and Columbus? I went into, what, five overtimes or something ridiculous like that? What would have happened if they lost that game? Because they got swept by Columbus last year. They were clear and, you know, clearly the best team in the regular season uh, last year. Going to the playoffs, they were the Stanley Cup favorites by a lot of pundits, and they get swept by the lowly Columbus Blue Jackets. Game one. You know, the redemption game, you know, the redemption series for the Lightning goes to five overtimes. Imagine if they lost that game. I mean, who knows? They might have never been able to recover, but they won the game. Good for them. And yeah, I mean, the one guy that I really have always loved. I mean, I love Stamkos, don't get me wrong, but Victor Hedman. I was really happy to see him win the Conn Smythe. He was the guy I was hoping was going to win the Conn Smythe. I know there was an argument for Braden Point. I know there was an argument for Kucherov, and there was an argument for Vasilevsky. I mean, the fact that they had 
four legitimate contenders for the Conn Smythe just tells you how good of a team that Lightning team is. I agree with you. I really think there there, there was that point in Hedman where where a cut above Kucherov and Vasilevsky, who were excellent as well. I I know what you're saying, but uh, I I I thought Hedman was the right choice. Uh, point was a close second, and then a little bit of a gap to Vasilevsky and Kuch after that. But and yeah, and they did that all without Stamkos too. Makes you wonder what his future is there. Um, a lot of guys. I know that the Eric Cernak's name has come up in in trade rumors as well. Uh, uh, Luke Shen, former Canuck, uh, another guy on their blue line along with Shattenkirk and Bogosian, who's UFA's. So uh, they, so they got a week to kind of figure it all out before that team starts to get moved and things start to change around. But again, congrats to the Lightning. Um, I just really wish they didn't have two cups already. Yeah, I agree. Anthony Sorelli is another guy they got to figure out what to do with because they don't have a lot of money to sign him. Yeah, Sergachev as well. Sergachev's RFA. Um, there's uh, there's a lot of things happening there. But yeah, Sergachev and Sorelli, those are the two guys they want to keep. And yeah, see, we see what happens. I know a guy like Stamkos has a no-movement clause, though. Uh, a lot of their guys do. Cooch, Stamkos, Plot, Gord, Johnson. Uh, so things are going to be tricky there. So be fun to watch, like uh, a lot of teams. Other news more pertaining to the Canucks. Um, as I expected, Quinn Hughes... Did not win the Calder Trophy. I just, I just had a feeling. Kale McCarr, uh, that one time zone over does make a difference. You know, I was talking to a buddy of mine in Toronto who's a big Canucks fan, and for him, he, it works out well. He works in film. He's working strange hours. Works late. Goes to his local bar. Canucks games on at ten, ten thirty. It's no problem. They'll put it on for him. But uh, again, I think Hughes just doesn't get the same sort of press uh that McCarr got just being that one time zone over it made a difference and McCarr had the playoff splash the year before as well but congrats to McCarr um Hughes McCarr and Heiskinen and also Shea Theodore the the four defensemen that really were the the corners of the final four in the west those four defensemen are going to be fun to watch for a long time yeah like I said obviously it's disappointing that Hughes didn't win the Calder but you know McCarr is not a bad choice uh, he scores more goals. He's a little bit more flashy in the sense. I mean, Hughes is flashy as well, but like Bakar's like jump out of your seat flashy, where Hughes is like, what the hell? Did he just do that kind of flashy? You know, Bakar's one of those defensemen that can go end to end on a rush and, you know, beat three guys and score a goal, almost Bobby Orr like, in, you know, in, in a sense. Where Hughes is a guy who like will break a guy's ankles and then, you know, set up a beautiful pass cross ice to. PD or Besser for a tap-in type of thing. Um, but you know what? Like, it's going to be a, de- uh, a debate moving forward, you know, who's better. And, you know, as long as H- Hughes gets uh, a Norse trophy before Makar, uh, all's well that ends well, right? Well, that's the next trophy to go for, right? It is cool and it is going to be fun to watch uh, this rivalry that Canucks haven't really had something like this and geez I, I don't really know like uh, a young player coming up with another young player and you just have that initial rivalry it's right like the Crosby and Ovechkin thing both playing in the east you, and now you have over here and McCarr and Hughes and I mean I'm not saying they're like Crosby and Ovechkin but you know what I mean it's yeah, like the same the same the same kind of thing where they got two guys who play in the same conference coming to the league right at the same time uh, they're in the the battle for the Calder Trophy, and it connects them. And uh, you also have Heiskanen in there, who got all the way to the finals, and would have been my choice for Con uh, uh, Smythe had Dallas won it. But I, I think it's going to be really fun, and we're very fortunate to have a player like that on our team. So 
you know, losing the Calder, uh, that's crazy. But also, it's the first time, I think, since the late 60s where, and that was in a 12-team era, where a team has had three straight nominees for the Calder Trophy. So that's also uh, pretty impressive, I think, on the Canucks side. Yeah, I mean, the Canucks, obviously it's disappointing, but you got to be really happy. You know, Besser, Petey, and now Hughes all being nominated back to back to back. I do find it funny, you look back as the 2017 draft, uh, and everyone that year was saying how it was a really weak draft, and it wasn't a great draft, but yet, think about this, Heiskanen, Makar, Pedersen, like, those are three, like, superstar, you know, potential generational players of their positions uh, in what was considered a weak draft. Um, Obviously, uh, I still think... um, he sure is a good player, but obviously, you know, he's definitely not better than any of the three guys I just named. And Nolan Patrick, I mean, I think he's a good NHLer, but he's never going to be, you know, live up to the billing of second overall. And and really, the 2017 draft, like, it, there are a lot of what could be misses or a lot of guys who haven't done uh, a lot yet. There's, there's three players who have yet to play a game in the uh, NHL from that first round still. However... If the, out of the top five, which is really the the kind of the cream of it, numbers one and two would now be numbers four and five. Uh, you know, I you put Heischer at four and you put Patrick at five, and then it's Heiskin and Makar and Pedersen battling for the top spot. Which is you're you're right though. All of a sudden that draft was producing three studs like that, and we'll see. There's some other players in there like Nick Suzuki uh, was in that draft as well, and Robert Thomas, and there's some guys who could do something, but. For the most part, those guys are picks three, four, and five are running away. And I can't help but laugh a little bit and remember just how disgruntled and pissed off I was, like most Canucks fans were, that again, we fell in the draft and we didn't get a higher pick. It's like, oh my God, we're picking at five. We're not going to get the blue chip defenseman. We're not going to get the, one of the top two. There's, there's a feeling that year that there was a real drop from four to five. And uh, we got Pedersen at five. So... You know, sometimes we've had a bit of luck, even with our falling in all the drafts. We've had a, a little bit of luck with those first rounders. Yeah, uh, you know, the Canucks have, I think, the, from when they changed the draft and the way it works with, like, the lottery and teams being able to fall, I believe up until this year, Detroit now has that crown of the team that's fallen the most over the course of the last four or five years. The Canucks are the second worst at that is they've fallen the most positions over the course of the last four or five years but you know what in those last four or five years they've drafted three potentially four with pod coles and really really you know good players that are found foundational players for your future for sure for sure um another really big piece of news that came out of the nhl this weekend i'm not surprised by this uh was henrik lundquist getting bought out of the final year of his deal with the rangers um i have a few thoughts on this but doug uh, i want to let you go first man what do you what do you think about the lundquist buyout with the rangers carrying three goalies for a lot of last year um first off i just have to say that i've always had a non-sexual crush on Henrik Lundqvist, uh, the man. And again, not that I'm a dapper man whatsoever. Uh, he's a very dapper man. He's, he's a very a, he's... dapper man. Like he, he is very sharply dressed. He just, you know, exudes confidence. And yeah, I've always been a big, big Henrik Lundqvist fan. 
I was really sad that they didn't win the cup, uh, even though I hate the Rangers because of 93-94. I did, uh, I forget, who did they lose to? Was it LA or Chicago a couple of years ago, I believe? Or That was LA, I think, because I seem to remember it was like the dream final was LA and New York for the NHL. I think the Kings beat them that year. Yeah, and Vigneault was the coach as well. And so I, I actually wanted Lundqvist to win a, win a cup. Um, yeah, it's, it's sad. It's the end of an era, right? It's He's to New York in a lot of ways what the Sedins were to the Canucks. You know, he is just that outstanding, you know, figure in that market. And especially in a market as big as New York, where it is New York, so everything is big. Obviously, you know, you got the Knicks, you got the Yankees, you got the Jets and the Giants. Uh, but a lot of the New York media said that Lundquist was just as big, if not one of the biggest athletes in all of New York. And he plays for the hockey team. Obviously, the Knicks haven't had anyone to talk about or, or to, you know build up at all uh, in the past 10 years. I mean, Carmelo Anthony, maybe the Yankees are the Yankees, but you know, you have so many players on the Yankees and it hasn't been to the last couple of years. They've kind of got a couple of big stars. Um, Yeah, it's, it's sad, man. It really is. Well, as someone who's spent a lot of time in New York, my mom's from New York. Um, One of the things, another thing with the Yankees is fact of course that they play in the Bronx right like MSG and you've been to MSG and you know you saw LCD sound system there didn't you yeah it was like meant to be the last show ever uh yeah me and uh buddy English John he flew in from London and uh, I flew in from Vancouver it was amazing yeah that's that's awesome I've I've been to MSG a couple times I saw the Canucks play the Rangers there a couple years ago I saw a Knicks game against uh the Rockets a couple years ago there as well um and Lundquist is the face of the franchise. So I was talking with a few buddies about this, and one of my buddies, Corey, uh, this really kind of rubbed him the wrong way. And I, I mean, I get why the Rangers did this. This is a smart move for the Rangers. You got to get that money off the books. You got two young goalies coming in. Can't carry three goalies. Uh, you know, Henrik had to go. It was not an easy move for them. I'm sure they didn't want to do this. Uh, what was rubbing Corey the wrong way, though, is just that, like, it, it, it felt like, this was disrespecting Lundquist in a way. And I mean, players get paid a lot of money. Like I think Henrik Lundquist has earned over a hundred million dollars in his career. So that's part of the nature of the business, but we were just kind of spitballing ideas and how you could work around this. And I just wanted to kind of throw this idea out to you as well. Um, what if there was a spot on teams and you had to meet certain criteria for it to have a player go into a player coach position and you Put them then outside of the salary cap. There has to be certain requirements. Like, let's say you have to spend eight years with the team, be over 35, have only X amount of years left in the contract. But it'd be a guy who works as part of your roster, works outside the cap, is still in the system, um, could still play games, and maybe there's a limit on the number of games or something. But it would... The, the reason I, I think that works is then the players would still get paid. Uh, the team doesn't have to do something like the Rangers did and let uh, the franchise face of the franchise in the NHL's biggest market walk it keeps them involved but it's not hurting anybody and I also like the idea of a player coach if you go all the way back there used to be player coaches in in hockey I just think it'd be kind of a neat thing so anyways I was just spitballing just just kind of quickly it just didn't you know sorry to spring that on you but well what are your thoughts with that yeah I mean I think there's there there's a foundation for something there uh, I don't know if a player like Lundqvist, who is a very competitive guy, would want to do that, right? And he's playing, what, a third of the games, if that. He, maybe he plays 10 games in the year. Um, I think, again, I like the idea, but I have noticed 
that the top tier guys now the one that this may not actually account for is Patrick Waugh but most of those top tier guys they generally don't make good coaches they're just too competitive and especially when it's like this part where it's like Martin Broder leaving the Devils right he wanted to keep playing you know Lamorella was ready to move on with him and you know it sucked he went to St. Louis played like a year and a half if that and then just retired um I, again, I like the idea there, and I think there is something to it, but is he going to want to do that, right? Like, is he going to want to be, is the the competitive fire and nature that's in him, is he going to want to only play a third of the games or, you know, maybe a 25% of the games, if that, you know, and is he the kind of guy that wants to help mentor the young players because you hear that a lot too a lot of these old guys don't want to be the mentor to the young players because they're like this guy's taking my job why do i want to help this guy push me out of the league well that's i mean it's not something that a guy has to do it'd have to be agreed on by the team and the player and player coach it's more of a mentorship role it'd be like a legacy player kind of you know it's a guy gets kind of tagged as his legacy player with the team and that's just kind of you know one way i thought that then the rangers can keep their guy lundquist can save some face because lundquist may not even get a chance to play another game i mean i think he will i think a team is gonna pick him up uh, on on a cheap deal and actually on, on that you know i was also spitballing that if things do fall apart with marky here which it sounds like the team is still not there for a number of reasons would you be okay with hendrick lundquist coming in as a plan B for like a one-year, $2 million deal in Vancouver? I think it could work. I don't know if Lundquist would want to come out west, maybe. Um, I, I think it could work. I mean, I think even if you gave him like a two-year deal, uh, much like Ryan Miller. I mean, I didn't like the Ryan Miller signing when it happened, but honestly, Miller was a great player for the Canucks. And you know what? It was actually a really good signing by Benning, one of his more underrated signings, to be fair. I'm going to call it now. I say... Lundquist ends up in Washington. Holtby leaves. Lundquist backs up Samsonov in in Washington. Gets a cup. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Philly. I'm gonna say he goes to Philly and backs up uh, Hart just down the road from New York. It's a less than two hour train ride. Well, Washington's only like four hours, so um, I think Philly is a good landing spot. Similar to what you're what you're saying though. There, there's definitely a market for him out there. Um, back to Markstrom though. What do you what do you, what do you think right now is the the situation with Markstrom? I know there's like it, it just anytime you're hearing about anything with the Canucks right now, it's like everyone's just waiting for a domino to fall, right? Like uh, you hear Toffoli and Tanev are just there waiting for the Canucks to clear room. You hear Markstrom and the Canucks are far apart on a couple of things. Um, the running joke in Canucks Twitter this week has been your sources. So Doug, what are your sources uh, telling you about Markstrom and the Canucks? I think, and again, you know, not that I have any validated sources or anything, but I honestly think what's holding the entire process up is a no movement, no trade clause. I think that's what Markstrom wants. I don't think he wants to have to risk being taken by Seattle in the expansion draft. And I'm hoping Benning sticks to his guns and says, no, like if you want to stay here, we'll give you, you know, a bit longer term, potentially more money potentially but we can't give you a no move clause we can't give you a no trade clause to me that i if i'm the canucks management i i can't do that you can't risk losing demco for nothing and obviously everyone's like oh you can just trade demco then but then you know the canucks are forced to have to trade demco because if they don't trade him they're gonna lose him for nothing so to me that lowers any value demco has um or what you know and goalies don't have a lot of value right now anyway so for me that that i think is what is holding back 
the Canucks signing uh, Markstrom. And you hear reports that Detroit and Stevie Y would back the Brinks truck up for him. And that makes a lot of sense. Apparently, Markstrom's really tight with Sam Gagne as well. There was that uh, video of him doing uh, gainers off of his houseboat or whatever it was, even though he's meant to be injured and, you know, whatever. People were like, oh, doing a backflip doesn't have anything to do with your knees. So, I don't know. I've I, I've never done a backflip, and uh, I've never <laughs> injured my knee either. So, yeah. Uh, I've injured my knee, but I'm with you on, on the backflip. Yeah, I think... Um... I, th- I do agree with you completely about the no trade, no movement. As long as Demko is an active member of this roster, and I mean, his name does get bandied about in trade rumors as well out there. Uh, but if the plan is to keep Demko going into next season, right now that's the goalie you have to protect. And if you'd asked a lot of Canucks fans, probably even myself included, in the break between when the season got cut off after the game against the Islanders to when it restarted against the Wild, I would have probably been staying still as, oh, well, you signed Markstrom, and uh, you figure out what to do with Demko. But I think what we saw in the playoffs, that's changed that narrative uh, for the team and for a lot of fans. As you, you kind of realize, like, okay, well, Demko is the one you have to protect. Even the guys like me, I love Markstrom. He's been our MVP the last two years. And it's crazy to say that the goalie you protect is Thatcher Demko. But that no trade, no movement thing, and that, that was a good thing as well with the Tyler Myers deal that Benning struck was uh, that he, you could, you're able to leave him exposed in the draft, which was which is smart as well, although Canucks have all sorts of room on the blue line right now for protection. Um, it's... Uh, I, I think that's the real sticking point. And I think the other sticking point, and I, I believe I mentioned this on the last episode, is let's say the Canucks are, let's just say they're coming in at a two-year uh, $5 million per, so a two-year $10 million deal. If Detroit was to come in with a three-year $6 million deal, all of a sudden now you're talking an $8 million difference in actual value, right? Like that's not to be sneezed at for a goalie who's really only going to get one kick at the can at a, a big contract and in a and unfortunately for him happens in a year where no goalie is going to get a Bobrovsky style deal uh, probably ever again or at least for the foreseeable future yeah uh I mean that eight million dollar difference you know is nearly double what you'd be paying him over the course of three years right so yeah it, it makes a big difference um yeah, I get it. Like, I understand that, you know, he wants to cash in, and I think he does want to be a Canuck. And I do think that Benning and the management group and a lot of the players want Markstrom back. But, you know, they need to look to the future. And I know a lot of people, and I don't really agree with this narrative, but I know a lot of people are saying the Canucks have to go all in next year before uh, Pedersen and Hughes, or, you know, while Pedersen and Hughes are still on their ECLs. And I don't agree with that. I mean, when's the last core group of players that won a Stanley Cup on their ECLs, right? Obviously, all the Toronto players have signed their big contracts now, so it's not going to happen in Toronto. But, you know, Toronto is still very in, very much in contention to potentially win a Cup. Ovechkin was years past his uh, rookie contract before he won a Cup. You look at, you know, Crosby, I think his first Cup might have been his third year or just the first contract out of his uh, ECL. So he might be the one outlier, but you know, most of that Chicago team, those guys were generally already paid. Maybe the first cup, they were all kind of young. Uh, It doesn't really happen as much as everyone thinks It's like, Oh, the Canucks have to go all in. Uh, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that this team is set up in two, three years 
to be potential President Trophy winners. I really do. When you have Pod Colson on the team, Hoglander on the team, who knows where Cole Lind is with his progression. Uh, there's a chance, obviously, the Canucks are going to draft some players over the course of the next couple of years. And, you know, maybe you find a Braden Point, you know, at the 79th overall pick. And that guy's knocking on the door to be, you know, a top six forward or third line center for you. Uh, I don't, I don't. I don't agree that you have to go all in, and I think you need to look for the future. And to me, the future does scream Demko over Markstrom. Yeah, the whole entry-level deal thing is uh, there's two ways you look at it. The the people who preach for that three-year window are doing it because it's cap weaponizing, right? You're paying these guys the, a very low contract, so it's like, hey, we have these star players. Let's uh, let's bring in these guys and win the cup and take advantage of that. But on the flip side is these guys are just kids, right? Like, I mean, they're they're 19, 20 years old. They're not the type of players necessarily built to win a cup yet. I mean, it happens. But even Tampa Bay is a good example. They've been making this run forever. Washington, as you mentioned before, they're doing it. St. Louis as well. It takes time. It takes you got to build that core. You got to keep building that team. You got to have pieces coming in through the system as well. Um, Jack Rathbone is another guy you know I'm big on. We don't know what we have with Oleo Levy yet. We we may actually have something from what we've seen. But uh, uh, that's the, the two kind of arguments. But I, I agree you don't push it for a short window. It's not like next year. If the Canucks were to say, hey, we got to go all in next year and, and go for it, that's, uh, that's a huge mistake because the, over the next year or two, well, two years to complete the process, all these contracts that everyone in Canucks land is sick of talking about, myself included, are going to be off the books. All your cap recaptures, even the Ryan Spooner and Roberto Luongo things, they're all off the books. And for me, that's when you really, your window, like you said, you said two years or so, that's when your window really starts to open. By then now, okay, you got your core players are a few more years in. They've improved. They're bigger. They're better. Uh, you have some other guys coming in on ELCs, and you now also can build a team around them. So uh, I don't think the Canucks need to go all in next year, uh, but I do want to see them also hold the course. Uh, right now, I do feel that there's going to possibly, there's a good chance that there's going to be a regression on the quality of their starting lineup just due to cap issues. Um, but I want to see them hold the course and continue to make the playoffs. Uh, that's that's the the bar now. That was the goal last year, but that is now the bar. If you don't make the playoffs with this team, it's a failed season. And it's going to take a few years of doing that building. But uh, anyways, that's my long my long ramble of the the pro and cons of the of the entry level thing. But I'm with you. I don't think it's like a, I don't think it's something that you force just to weaponize the the entry level deals. Yeah, again, you know, obviously, ideally, that's what you'd love to be able to do, but it doesn't happen. Like, it very rarely happens. Most of the team's superstar players are well within or well into a long-term big-ticket contract, and it just is what it is. Uh, Right now, I think the Canucks are in a pretty good position. Like you said, most of the bad contracts, outside of maybe the Tyler Myers contract, That's the other one that, you know, a lot of fans are saying is going to be an albatross and probably will be. But outside of that, you're right. Sutter's off the books. The Spooner buyout, the Luongo cap recapture penalty, uh, obviously Louis Erickson, uh, Sven Berchi. There's a lot of money that does get freed up, but then you're spending a lot of money to assign Hughes. You're spending a lot of money to sign Petey. And then, you know, you got some big qualifying offers probably coming up. I believe the qualifying offer for Brock will be eight and a half million. 
Um, you know, which is going to be tough. I, I get that, but who knows? You know, maybe Brock comes in and lights the world on fire next year, and that qualifying offer is is a steal. The one thing that is really funny, and I, I, I know it's hard for people to kind of realize it, the market changes year to year. Does it, do you remember when Leon Drysaddle signed his contract? And I understand what everyone's saying. They're saying that it was such an overpayment at the time. Yes, obviously now it looks like a great deal for the Oilers. But at the time, essentially that first year, maybe even the first two years of that contract was a massive overpayment in a lot of people's eyes. Now it looks really good. The one contract that I've heard a lot of people say that's really fucked up the RFAs is Mitch Marner and the Leafs. And they really overpaid for Marner. And Marner's, you know, he's a great player. I'd love to have him on the Canucks. He's a really, really good player. But, you know, Marner's probably more eight and a half, nine million dollar player. And the Leafs paid him, what, 11, 75 or 12? You know what I mean? They gave him the same money essentially as uh, Austin Matthews and John Tavares. And that's really screwed up. And so a lot of agents are going to point to the Marner deal and be like, well, he's getting that. My guy, I think, is you know is comparable, if not better. He needs to be paid the same. So we'll see how the market fluctuates, especially with the flat cap world we're now in. But it changes it year to year. And year to year, a guy's contract last year didn't look great. All of a sudden, you know what? That's a sweetheart deal now. And the perfect example to me is Drysaddle. Or Nathan McKinnon. He's another one who uh, got the, the ultimate sweetheart deal, I, I feel. McKinnon, though, he did have a couple of kind of bad years. There was that, I think it was a year or two years. Like, they made the playoffs that one year with McKinnon, and then they struggled for a couple of years. I think uh, Waugh was the coach then, and they had Duchesne in the room, who seemed to, there seemed to be some issues with either Duchesne and management or maybe some of the young emerging core and obviously once Duchesne left and again I'm not saying he you know he's a bad teammate or anything like that but it just that whole thing with Duchesne seemed to be a bit of a distraction and once he left it finally felt like this was officially McKinnon's team and he turned it around and yeah like you said McKinnon's probably on the best deal another guy you know we talked about earlier in this episode is Victor Hedman. Look at Victor Hedman's contract. I think he's making eight and a half million or something crazy like that. No it's it's actually less it's 7.8 Wow. And a lot of people, you know, were saying at the time, like, oof, like that's a huge ticket for Hedman. Like he's worth it, but still that's a big, big ticket. Now you're like, holy cow, man, that's an amazing deal. For sure. Um, I wanted to just quickly circle back because uh, to something before I, I tag a little bit more onto Victor Hedman there. Um, but you mentioned qualifying offers. And one thing in the new CBA is that they're changing the way you have to qualify a player. So right now a qualifying offer, for those that don't know, it's based on the last year's salary. So in Brock Besser's clay case, it's uh it, you're a little high, but it's seven and a half million. But he's only getting he only got paid four million this year, uh six and a bit next year, and then seven and a half. So the qualifying offer is on the seven and a half million. What they're changing it now is it's the AAV of the previous contract. So the if this was in the new CBA, because his AAV is 5.875, that would be the qualifying offer, even though he made seven and a half million in the last year of his deal. One player that really jumped out at me when I was looking through this, I'm like, that's kind of weird. Who uh, Who's really in a weird spot with that? Timo Meyer in San Jose. Now, San Jose's always got weirdly structured contracts. Remember, they got Kevin LeBanc for that like ridiculous deal as well. 
But the way the Meyer deal is structured, he's RFA at the end of it. His qualifying offer is $10 million. So San Jose will have to pay him. If they want to keep him, He's it's a $10 million qualifying offer or he becomes an unrestricted free agent. So, and again, like his first two years is, uh, of his new deal, his contract's something really low, like 700000 and then it jumps and it jumps. And I don't know exactly why it's structured so much like that, but his qualifying offer in the last year is is ten million. So, anyways, I just thought that was that was interesting. That's how the qualifying offers work now and how they're going to change. Uh, but Victor Hedman uh, and I was going to bring this up, and you stole my my tie in line, but it's a perfect segue. Uh, Seven point eight two five million. Oliver Ekman Larson, a little bit over eight million right there. Uh, what do you think about t- the Twitter explosion today? of oel well it's funny i think it was either yesterday or the day before i sent you a dm about you know there was some rumors i think friedman had mentioned it on his 31 uh thoughts podcast and then there was like one of those anonymous you know trade rumor guys who yes i love i love following them i know it's ridiculous um but i I love following those guys i really do you you give it you give it like an e4 no well i'm not a big (laughs) Eklund guy to be fair but some of the other ones that are like still anonymous i do like them and i i sent you a dm of this guy and like i what he was saying the Canucks would have to give up to get uh ekman larson i thought was ridiculous and we both agreed like there's no way this there's any validity to this it just doesn't make sense like the canucks don't need a left side defenseman ekman larson is making you know way too much money and you know if you were getting a player if you played the right side then sure maybe there's an argument and a case to be made and then today, uh, you find out that he he's only willing to waive his no new, no trade clause to two teams. One of them being the Bruins, the other one being the Canucks. Um, yeah, he, I think he's a really good player. I really do. He does he does kind of have a bit of a Louis Erickson vibe to him, only in the sense that for years Oliver Ekman Larson was considered the most underrated defenseman in the league. Louis Erickson, for years, namely when he was with Dallas, was the most underrated forward in the league. Uh, I do think you would get more out of Oliver Ekman Larson if the Canucks did pull a trade off than if, um, than, you know, what the Canucks got out of Louis Erickson. The only thing is, and yes, obviously, I do think he would make this team better. It's all about price of acquisition. And to me, if. Arizona is trying to get out of his deal, which is insanely, there's some massive bonuses coming up for him and there's major money. And I think that's why they're trying to trade him because I think, I think there's a $4 million bonus that needs to get paid. I believe he's got a $10 million salary next year or something like that. His cap, hits only 8.25, but I think like the actual salary is 10 million. Uh, I think he has another bonus of 2 million the following year. So, or five, um, so, you know, it, they, they, there's some big money over the next couple of years that is going to be owed to Oliver Ekman Larson. And you've already heard rumblings that the Arizona Coyotes haven't been able to play players bonuses and stuff like that. So to me, if there is a trade to be made, it's a cap dump. Like it's, it's definitely a salary dump. And I understand that the Canucks would have to be given bad contracts back, maybe a Louis Erickson, maybe a Brandon Sutter. But if you look at the term for Louis and Brandon Sutter compared to what the term is with Oliver Ekman Larson... The Coyotes are still saving a ton of money because they only have to pay two years, and most of Louis's money has already been paid over the course of the last four years. So they they would still be saving money. I wouldn't be giving up any first, second round picks to acquire him. 
you know, I wouldn't be giving up Brock Besser. Not that I think Besser would be considered in a trade. I believe it was someone. It was either Drager. Maybe it was um, someone. Maybe it was Drager or Rick Dollywall. I don't really remember. But one of them was saying that Besser is not in the talks uh, to acquire Ekman Larson. To me, yeah, I, I would definitely consider adding him, but it, only if it's pretty much like we're dumping salary to them and we're taking on a longer-term contract. I'm I'm more in favor of a retention scheme, but yeah, I think there would still, regardless, there would have to be some uh, some contracts going back the other way. Yeah, you mentioned uh, there's a four million dollar bonus coming to Air uh, Erickson Erickson Ekman Larson. There's too many Swedes on my screen here, and then, yeah, another five point two five in a couple of years. Um, his base salary on the year in between those bonuses is ten and a half. So yeah, there's a there's twenty nine million dollars in uh, the next three years that uh, the Coyotes would be having to pay him. That's a lot. It's a $58 million deal overall. I have concerns uh, with this myself. I like Ekman Larson. I do. But my first thing is, okay, left side defenseman. Anyone who thinks that, oh, you could just move a defenseman to the other side, hasn't played enough hockey or doesn't understand the game. It's not that easy to to do that. It's a, you know, in, in football, you're like, oh, I'm a wide receiver. Well, you should be able to be a cornerback as well. You know, you're still catching the ball. It's like, no, it, it doesn't work like that. And it's, uh, it's the left side in Vancouver is crowded. And I've been looking forward to seeing a battle for that number three left spot between Rathbone and Yolevi this year. I, I think that's going to be really fun to watch unless someone is able to, to play on the right side that is currently on the left side for the Canucks, or if OEL can play on the right side, then this doesn't make sense. And I don't know enough about the history of all these guys that just mentioned, uh, you know, Edler's uh, the other guy, and of course Hughes. I don't know who can actually play on the right side uh, out of all that, but for me, that's the biggest thing. You mentioned Erickson uh, and Tyler Myers. I mean, there are elements of this contract aging badly down the road. He is 29 right now. That deal is going to take him well into his 30s, and it's not going to be a very buyout-friendly deal with that that sort of money on it uh, as well. So there's, there's that as well. Um, but there's also the argument that he could thrive in a system like Vancouver. Um, we've seen the Canucks second unit power play. There's skill out there. It needs a point man. Uh, the Canucks need someone to take the pressure off of Hughes, but is OEL the guy? I know we've discussed other cheaper options out there or maybe more appealing options. For me, the fact that he's a lefty and he's got a cap hit of $8.25 million till the 26-27 season. I just don't know if that's something the Canucks should be getting mixed up in right now. Yeah, I mean, that essentially, that you've got two spots pretty much locked up for the next seven years, let's say, at least, with Hughes and OEL. So what happens to Rathbone? What happens to Yulevi? You know, what if they start lighting the world on fire? There's no room for them. I mean, I guess you can bump OEL down to, what, your third pairing? And then you're paying your third pairing defenseman $8.5 or at least that's what he's counting against the cap. I do like him. I do think he's a good defenseman. I do think he would make the Canucks better. But, again, it's all about price or, you know, acquisition cost for me. And to me, this screams of a salary dump. The only issue I ever had with the JT Miller trade last year wasn't that I thought that the Canucks weren't getting a good player. It's just I felt like Tampa was trying to shed salary 
And so the Canucks should have been trying to take advantage of that as opposed to paying fair market value, right? If you got a team that's kind of behind the eight ball and they're trying to dump salary, much like how the Gillis did with the trade for uh, Christian Erhoff. That was a perfect example of the Sharks were all in. They just traded for Danny Heatley, and they needed to shed some salary, and Erhoff became expendable, and Gillis swooped in and got Erhoff for pennies on the dollar. And that's something I would like to see Benning pull off for a change, and he really hasn't. Uh, And to me, that would be the only way I would really be entertaining a potential Ekman-Larsen deal, is that, hey, we're doing you a favor, we're saving you all this money over the course of the next two years, and beyond because you're not going to you're going to be totally out of his contract you know and you're not going to have to worry about the last six years essentially because you're gonna have to take money back but you don't have to worry about the last six years you have two years to pay similar money minus the big bonuses minus uh the base the 10 million base salary and yeah you guys are saving a ton of money that's the only way i do it yeah i mean considering he's given two teams and the coyotes need to drop salary is certainly uh, there's a lot to be said for that kind of like when pk suban got traded to jersey a couple of years ago of course that didn't work out too well but uh it, it would be similar things i just for me though again left side and too much money i think there's better options out there that would be a well i mean i think oel is, is a great defenseman uh but i think there's better options for the canucks cap point of view right now bringing in with this cap kind of climate that we have with all of the UFAs and RFAs to bring in a guy making 8 million. I don't know, unless, unless there's salary getting retained or unless uh, re- realistically is, I, I'm not sure how you can structure this, but maybe they take Erickson back. And then after that, for the final five years, there's some retained salary on uh, the Arizona side uh, to kind of keep it even out. Like if they were to keep 2 million a year, all of a sudden OEL is in the 6.25. That to me makes it a lot more palatable. However, you still got the the issue with the the left side being very crowded right now, and uh, again, right now, I I don't feel the need to do anything with the lefty. I like the lefty. I, like I said, I'm excited to see a battle with Yolevi and Rathbone for that number three left spot right now. And unless someone, unless Edler is able to go over to the right side in particular, um, and you put the vets on uh, the one side, uh, and you put if the young guys on the left. So if you were to have Let's say, you know, Hughes, Yolevi, and Rathbone on the left, and then you had Myers, Edler, and OEL on the right. Well, you know, that could work, but I don't know if that'll work, right? Like, uh, it's you're talking about having two moving two lefties over to the right side, and I, I don't know. Um, I'm hesitant. I'm curious to see, and I mean, if the trade happens, I'll be excited, but I would like to see for it to work. It's got to be Erickson going back, maybe Sutter. And then after the next two years, there's got to be some uh, at least $2 million retained by the Coyotes. And then we're kind of getting into a level where I'm, I'm more comfortable with it. Yeah, I mean, the Canucks right now, their biggest concern for defense should be who's going to be playing with Quinn Hughes next year because it's looking more and more likely Chris Tanev is gone. And you know what? Hey, if this is the last we saw of Tanev, You've been a, a great warrior for the team. Definitely going to miss you, buddy. I hope you cash in big in free agency. You deserve it. But who's playing with Quinn Hughes next year? To me, that's the biggest concern. You need That's who I would be worried about, and that would be my biggest like thought process heading into a free agency, heading into you know trade season, I guess we'll call it. Who's going to be playing with Quinn Hughes next year? 
you know, adding another guy to the left side doesn't help you solve that problem. And right now, I don't want Tyler Myers playing with Quinn Hughes. I mean, you could put Troy Stetcher and Quinn Hughes together. If Stetcher even comes back, who knows what's going to happen with that. Um, You could put those two together. But then my question with that is, what happens with Stetcher? uh, Or sorry, you know, Travis Green has shown that he doesn't like playing the two small uh, defensemen, Stetcher and Hughes, together. I know a lot of people are always worried about them getting pushed around and stuff like that. I mean, maybe we'll see one of those rare three-team trades and Boston Bruins end up jumping in there as well. And I know the Bruins got some bad contracts they're trying to shed and some young RFAs they're not, you know, they don't know if they're going to qualify or, you know, maybe they're looking to trade. Uh, DeBrusque's name's been out there and stuff like that. So who knows? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting week for sure. I mean, next time we do an episode, Doug, uh, hopefully something has happened on the OEL front. We'll have the draft. We'll have had... uh, uh, free agency or we'll be around that time in any case but this should be a really eventful week coming up before we get into the chirping in the free pour uh doug just some quick thoughts you uh you want to bring up tyler mott on this episode as well yeah uh i'm sure everyone saw it on social media uh just tyler mott talking about depression and just you know asking for help and stuff like that and uh yeah i think especially right now during the pandemic and just how you know, it's, it's hard, man. Like, dude, it's fucking hard. Like it's, you know, you and I have had some good conversations, you know, friend to friend, we work together, you know, it it hasn't been easy. And, you know, I I think what Mott was trying to say is, you know what, ask for help. If you think you need help, you know, don't be shy. Don't be holding these feelings in or constantly, you know, falling into that, you know, circle of depression, you know, ask for help. And I think, you know, a lot of people on social media, Aquilini made a statement about it. Uh, there was a great interview with him. Uh, yeah, it's nice to see, especially athletes who we always look up to as fans as like these superheroes and, you know, they don't have any real world problems and all this stuff. And, it's, you know, it's nice to see that kind of human element that, you know what, they hurt too. Uh, totally agree. I mean, I'm a huge Tyler Mott fan already, but what he's been doing this year with mental health and everything else, I think is is incredibly brave and awesome and yeah everyone listening out there as well if you ever need someone to talk to they hopefully got people around you if you don't hey reach out to us even man like uh we we get it we know what it's we know what it's like but uh tyler mott rfa he'll be back with the team next year as well but uh, uh well not but when he signs uh good chance i'm gonna be wearing a tyler mott jersey to games next year or the year after, whenever we do get to go to games. Anyways, let's, uh, we're going to do a quick little chirping section, Doug. I've got a, we haven't done this for a while, and uh, I just got a couple of tweets I wanted to run by you very quickly here before we get into the free pour. So, are you ready? I am ready. All right. First one. This comes from Nikki, but spooky, with a whole bunch of emojis after that. You can... Find her at rad underscore Nikki with two K's YVR. She says, I love this. The only thing more boring and eye roll worthy than blabbering on about stats is hypothetical trades, which I feel we've, we've probably done a, a lot of both. What, what do you think, Doug? Oh, uh, I disagree. I, I love talking about hypothetical trades, man. I, it, honestly, it's, it's in my wheelhouse. And I know it's not for everybody. Stats, I get because they're stats upon stats and numbers and all that stuff. But hypothetical trades, man, 
Yeah, sign me up, dude. I, I already said, I, I admitted, man, I follow all these anonymous trade rumor mongers on Twitter, and I love it, especially this time of year. Uh, I'm kind of uh, on the fence, I got to say. Like, I'm I'm more stats guy. I, uh, I I do blabber on about stats for sure. I I think uh, just there's just too many rumors, and I think it's more just when stuff gets spread and just kind of starts making the rounds, and you're looking at this like, who the heck is – you're trading a Zamboni and and two bags of pucks and your seventh round pick for a guy who played in the All Star game. Like people get into this mentality of like bulking up all these spare parts and like, oh, we got enough of these spare parts. This team can build a car with it. We're gonna take your Lamborghini. And uh, so I, I kind of get that. I'm I'm more stats. Uh, so hey, maybe that's why we can. Uh, bang out this podcast as we, we kind of yin and yang it there um second one for you uh now this is uh you're gonna have to pay attention with me uh it's a it's a retweet i'm giving the credit to omar ar so omar canuck uh for his comment on this uh, but he's retweeting something from sports media watch which he kind of mentioned uh something about very briefly earlier in the episode. So I want you to pay attention here because there's a, a little bit of rambling I got to go through. So Omar says, too much going on at once or did people fill the sports gap in their lives and are unwilling to give that time back now? And so he's got the this tweet here. It says, viewership trends, NBA finals, game one, down 45%, all-time low. Stanley Cup final, down 61%, 13-year low. U.S. Open, final round, down 56%, all-time low. Kentucky Derby, down 43%, all-time low. Indy 500, down 32%, all-time low. This is all on viewership trends. All of the May and June events moved to August and September. What do you think, uh, especially during COVID, Doug, do you think that's an oversaturation, or do you think it's just when they're trying to fill the void and uh, is not being the right time of year for a North American fan base? Uh, I think a little bit is like a lot of that was happening in the summer and obviously, you know, through maybe it wasn't the smartest or the best idea, but you know, through July and August, a lot of the restrictions had been lifted. So a lot of people were outside, you know, a lot of people, the bars were open again. And so people were going to the bars, they were going to restaurants, they were seeing some of their friends that they hadn't seen in months. So it makes sense. It makes sense that a lot of that stuff was happening. I mean, Obviously, with like Canadian teams not being in the Stanley Cup final, that's going to affect viewership. I think a lot of Canadian viewers weren't as interested in the Stanley Cup final as if, you know, the Canucks or whoever, the, the Leafs or the Oilers were in it or anything like that. Um, you know, I think people have LeBron f- fatigue, you know, LeBron in another NBA final. And, you know, I think that is fatigue. And just the way baseball is, you know, this weird two-game playoff series, I thought, like, I didn't even know it was a two-game playoff series until, oh, the Blue Jays have been out. I'm like, what do you mean they're out? They only played two games. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's it. It was a best of three. I'm like, oh, okay. Didn't know that. Cool. Um, shitty. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of fatigue. And, and I think right now, like, I, I think people are baking bread at home. You know what I mean? They're doing arts and crafts. They're picking up a guitar they're reading books which again i'm a huge sports fan but those are all things we need to be doing more of yeah i I agree i think it's just timing wise it's it's there's there's a routine with a lot of things like we know in june you're going to get the nba finals and the stanley cup finals you know in october you got the world series nfl the return of sports normally 
it's kind of throwing that rhythm out. Blue Jays is a good example. I, I was off by a day. I caught the Blue Jays game where they got eliminated and they were down like 7 nothing in the first inning. I'm like, well, this is no fun. But I think it's just uh, with people being aware of what's coming with the second wave with uh, summer and being able to be outside and do everything else, I think uh, the TVs and the screens where people were trying to put on the back seat a little bit more or as much as possible – um, and now we're going to kind of get back inside, and uh, I think the NFL is going to really kind of come back to the, the sports focus. But, yeah, I think, it's again, it's just a timing thing, and it's just the routine of being a sports fan. Not used to everything going on right now, you know what I mean? Yeah, the other thing, too, and it would be nice to know if those numbers were accounting for this, streaming. Streaming's really big, and I don't know if a lot of those big network television numbers that we get include streaming. And a lot of people streaming are streaming a lot of their services, especially with people who lost their jobs. They can't afford TV right now, so you know, obviously, they're still going to have internet, and they're streaming a lot of these games. I don't know if like DAZN numbers are on there or, you know, anything like that. So I think that is also another thing is you know people streaming uh, games, and it'd be interesting to see what those numbers are. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I have no idea where these numbers come from, but I do know it's time to take it into the free pour. All right, it's that time of the episode. It's the free pour open floor segment of the episode, and I'll just jump into mine. And a little behind-the-scenes knowledge for the fans listening here. Um, So every time Pete and I record a podcast, uh, you know, we take turns on who edits the podcast. Pete will edit a couple, and then I'll edit a couple. Uh, If there's any glaring flaws in this episode, you can blame me because I'm editing this one. Um, But one of the things that happens is we'll often like i'll export my audio and i'll send it to pete via dropbox but the e d and c keys on my keyboard for my laptop don't work so every time i send an episode i i put it piso p-i-s-o because i can't put the e or the d in there so i put it p-i-s-o 39 p-i-s-o 52 um and it wasn't until, I, what was it, like maybe episode 40? And I, I finally actually told Pete why I did that. And Pete's like, oh, he's like, I forget what you said. What was the reason that you thought I was doing it? No, I just I just asked you what Piso mean. I'm like, why do, oh, you, why do you why do you send me, why do you always call him Piso? Yeah, and so that's that's the reason. So all these files on our Dropbox will be like Piso 42, Piso 25. It's because my E, D, and C keys on my keyboard don't work. Again, random story just like the thought i'd share with you guys <laughs> uh yeah that's i've been waiting for you to drop that into a free pour because that is pretty funny um i'm gonna stick with a the music theme um because i found a record this week that i've been looking for for a while and the way i found it just seems so easy so i was just out for a walk the other day and i was um uh, actually, just a quick side note for that. I had to put together a couple little, uh, just little care packages I send to friends. And so I was going to go down to Beat Street Records because I knew they sold like some old packs of cards and buttons and stuff. And I just walked in there and I, I always like Beat Street. The guys are really friendly in there. And I was I just, you know, kind of on a whim. I'm like, hey, do you guys have a, do you happen to know if you have a copy of uh, Sex Packets by Digital Underground in here? I've been looking for it for a while. And he calls to his other guy in the store. He's like, yeah, I think I saw one over here. A guy goes into a bin, flips through like five. I'm like, oh, yeah, here it is. I forgot what the cover looked like. I've been kind of chasing a copy of this album for a while. And uh, it was just so nice to get it. For those that don't know Digital Underground, old school rap, one of my favorite 
albums growing up. I just freaking loved Sex Packets. I still do. It's a great album. And when we did the episode with, was it last episode? We had Jimi Hendrix uh, did, do the outro yep. track. Yep. So that song uh, that we used is sampled on the second track of Sex Packets and The Way We Swing. So um, just, that's kind of another little connection right there. But anyways, looking for some good old school hip hop, go check that out never get enough of the Humpty Dance, I'll tell you that. And well, if you give me enough drinks, I can wrap that whole thing start to finish with, without looking at any sheets. So I've witnessed next- it in real life. So that is true, <laughs> folks. Uh, that's uh, one of my party tricks. Uh, I don't have a lot of party tricks, but wrapping the Humpty Dance is one of them. Yeah, great band from Seattle as well, just down the road. Uh, yeah, Digital Underground. I don't think they get enough love in today's kind of hip-hop manifesto. Uh, they're pretty much considered a one-hit wonder. You're the one who actually showed me that album in its entirety and the way we swing because that song, Who Knows by Jimi Hendrix, has always been one of my favorite Jimi Hendrix kind of hidden gem songs. And then you showed me, hey, dude, like actually Digital Underground sample it on this song called The Way We Swing. And I was just, my mind was blowing. I was like, fuck, this is awesome. Yeah, it's it's done well. And uh, so, anyways, music recommendation for the week. Check it out if you, you don't already know it. And if you already do know it, I'll, get, I'll, I'll wrap you the Humpty Dance or do what you like one of these times. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Episode 52 is just about in the books. Um, and a little more music for you. You can hear the track going on in the background. You can find that on our Spotify playlist. That's uh, the Canucks Speak Easy outro playlist. All our outro tracks go on there. Lots of funky jams, so so you can check that out, too, when you're done listening to Digital Underground. Uh, it's very much on the funk and hip-hop side of things, but that's not our only music love. It's just kind of the, the theme we've chosen for that. Uh, and myself, I am on Twitter at Pete underscore Gas. Uh, give me a follow at Doug Venn, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Canucks Speak. Uh, yeah, Pete, that's uh, episode 52. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, we were wondering a couple days ago, we were like, uh, should we record? And, and I was kind of like, I don't know. There's not a lot to talk about. And then we were going to record last night. I'm glad we didn't because this OEL thing came up and it just kind of got the juices flowing. But here we are an hour or so into it and uh, definitely lots to talk about. We didn't even touch on, you know, Jake Furtanen was in my notes here as well and a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, I think uh, I think this one went pretty well. I think uh, hopefully your editing isn't too sketchy and uh, this turns out well. Yeah, I think it'll be a pretty easy episode to edit. I did feel like I swore a lot in this episode, so I'll try to mind my P's and Q's next episode. You had a few in there, but I like that. It shows emotion. It shows that you you, you care. You know, I can see you get animated on my screen here, and it's like, oh, here here come the cuss words. Doug's really into this. I like that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, As always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego.